Welcome to Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry will lead into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. This season, I'm sitting down with thought leaders in and around the oil and gas industry to look at the competing trends of ESG and anti-ESG, all with an eye to what's coming next so that company leaders can chart a course that is flexible, responsive, but not reactionary. And right now, there's really no topic more compelling to think about this than offsets. So I sit down with Adam and Teen's expert on this topic, Kelsey Grant, and she co-hosts with me. We speak with Alexia Kelly, who's Managing Director of the Carbon Policy and Markets Initiative at the High Tide Foundation. Alexia has an MPA in climate change mitigation policy and a master's and bachelor's in public policy and management from the University of Oregon. In her role at the High Tide Foundation, she serves on the board of the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market, which you'll hear her talk about during our conversation today. Alexia has worked at companies including Netflix, and she served as Senior Climate Change Advisor at the U.S. Department of State. You can learn more about Alexia's biography in our show notes. I hope you enjoy my conversation today with my co-host, Kelsey, and our guest, Alexia Kelly. Alexia Kelly, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Things podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here, Jessica. I'm so excited. My colleague, Kelsey Grant, is also joining us today. And we are just going to geek out in the best possible way. So we're we're here to talk with Alexia about carbon offsets. And this has become a topic that is controversial, uh, that is really marred by opposition. And yet we at Adam and Teen still think it's a good idea, um, but it's confusing and it's rapidly evolving. And I'm wondering, Alexia, if you can tell us a little bit about how you advise companies to navigate carbon offsets in this world that has so much pushback and uncertainty. Great question, Tisha. And thanks so much for the invitation to join you here on Energy Thinks today. Carbon offsets or carbon credits, as we call them, have always been a controversial and challenging topic and frankly has been for the last 15 years. So we talk about carbon credits as being one part of a company's decarbonization journey, certainly not the only part, but also not an unimportant part. The science is abundantly clear that rapid and sustained reductions in emissions from fossil fuels is imperative and needs to happen within the next three decades if we have a hope of averting climate catastrophe. And carbon offsets and investment in many types of projects that can generate them. So things like protection and preservation of tropical forests, mitigation of methane from a wide variety of sources, including landfills and the oil and gas distribution system, restoration of marine and blue carbon ecosystems can all help us contribute to reducing and removing carbon dioxide and in slowing climate change. In particular, while we're doing the hard and slow and expensive work, of transitioning the global energy sector to low and zero carbon technologies. So there are a number of significant efforts underway currently to address some of the key challenges that have been highlighted and frankly, often overblown in recent media attention to the carbon credit markets. And we're working to ensure that carbon credits can continue to play a credible role in driving climate change impact through initiatives like the Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets, which I'll talk a little more about later, which is really looking at the supply side offset quality and rules, and is not to be confused with the Voluntary Carbon Market Integrity Initiative, which is addressing the demand side quality issues. So there's a really focused and concerted 
effort underway right now to make sure that carbon markets continue to play a meaningful role in the low carbon economy transition over the next two decades. Great. Well, thank you so much, Alexia. So at Adamantine, and we've said this time and time again, we don't see carbon offsets as central to a company's sustainability and decarbonization strategy. However, when done well, carbon offsets can really support a company's emission reduction goals. And so I really want to ask you the the golden question, which is a question we receive a lot, which is what steps can leaders take to de-risk and bring legitimacy to their carbon offset strategy? Yeah, thanks, Kelsey. We really encourage companies to consider offsets as a last but not later solution, which means that ideally on an annual basis, you're doing everything you can to reduce your operational and internal emissions as much as possible. And then you're taking the action to address your residual emissions with high quality carbon credits, really as much as your budgets will allow. Particularly for companies in the oil and gas sector, there's a really important and substantial opportunity to contribute to additional climate change mitigation effort beyond your value chain through high quality carbon markets. So the work that I just mentioned that's underway from the Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets is very important because what that effort is doing is working to set core quality criteria and governance rules for the voluntary carbon market that will help ensure that carbon credits represent the emissions impact that we need them to. And so as a business leader, when thinking about building a high quality carbon credit portfolio, there are a number of things you can do. First and most importantly, do your homework. So not all carbon credits are created equal. And unfortunately, there are carbon cowboys out there who are seeking to take advantage of buyers. And so making sure that you're really working through clear and transparent and trusted standards is extremely important. So that second piece of advice, working through trusted standards, is really one way to ensure that any carbon credits you're purchasing represent the environmental impact that we need them to. The first batch of Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Market approved programs where we check their governance and oversight systems, and the first batch of labeled credits from the ICBCM, where we have experts review the methodologies and decide which tons in the market can use the ICBCM label of quality, which we call the CCP label or the core carbon principle label, will be out in in the market early next year. And then the third piece of advice we generally give folks is just to be transparent and honest. So the VCMI, the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative, has new disclosure requirements, as does the recent law in California that was just signed by the governor a couple of weeks ago, AB 1305. So it'll be really important to stay up to speed on public disclosure requirements and transparency rules because the bar and the standard in the market is evolving considerably with respect to transparency and disclosure across the board. And the utilization of carbon markets and carbon credits is no exception to that. Great. You've touched on a couple topics that I'd love to circle back momentarily, but I think this is a great segue into my next question. You know, clearly on one hand, we have companies embracing carbon offsets as a decarbonization tool. But on the other hand, particularly in recent months, several companies are seemingly retreating from using carbon offsets. And so I'm really curious, why do you think this is happening? Do you think there's a directional shift in how companies use or don't use carbon offsets? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Kelsey, and something that we're seeing sort of what's happening in the the noise versus what's happening in the market. So the data is showing that more companies are actually engaging in carbon markets than ever before. 
despite some very high profile kind of companies moving away from using offsets in response to a lot of the negative press that's been out there. So I think the answer to your question is kind of yes and no. I think we are seeing some directional shifts, but not necessarily in the direction that you might think, given where we are. Companies tend to go the way that public sentiment winds blow when it comes to their sustainability strategies. In this moment of market upheaval in the carbon markets, companies are understandably spooked by all the noise. But I don't think that this represents a retreat from carbon markets at a fundamental level because decarbonizing companies in the real world is really, really hard and it's slow and it's expensive. And we need tools that enable us to access all of the solutions that we have on the table today. So I think that means that these markets are going to have to be a part of the solution and that finding ways to get money into the almost infinite number of climate actions around the globe that we know are going to be required is critically important. And we know that market-based mechanisms are actually a really good and effective and rigorous way of getting money from one place into mitigation action in other parts of the globe. And I think folks underestimate the degree to which carbon markets and their very large set of assurance systems and checks and balances and monitoring, reporting, and verification systems are actually quite far ahead of where most of the rest of the greenhouse gas measurement world is. So I really don't see a world anytime soon where offsets aren't a critical part of the solution. Alexia, you're painting such a an important uh, but different picture than what we hear about offsets. If you're pragmatically working in this space, you just know we're going to need offsets if we're going to make progress in a timely fashion. And at the same time, there's this like you made a distinction between the noise or the overblown concerns. It's like very cool to be anti-offset right now, which is a super bummer if you ask me. But like anytime it's cool to be against progress, it's a bummer. And so what do you see is a are some ways that that we can help create pragmatic dialogues that bring in folks that right now it's kind of a freebie to be anti-offset out in the world right now. Uh, but so how, how can we create different kinds of conversations with NGOs, with companies, with these bodies that are going to help build credibility um, of, of these? How can we have better conversations about this? Yeah, I think this is a really important question and actually one of the reasons that the Carbon Policy and Markets Initiative exists uh, at the High Tide Foundation that I lead, which is just we need we need bridge builders right now. We need a lot of education. We need an opportunity to sit down and really have an honest conversation about the opportunities and the very real trade-offs that are involved in decarbonizing the global economy on anywhere near the timeline that the science is telling us is necessary. Because we are several decades behind where we really need to be at this point in time. And those curves, you know, you can't see my hand, but they just keep getting steeper, right? The pace and the scale and the size of the emissions gap and the speed with which we need to be decarbonizing is very dramatically outpacing, I think, the speed at which the real economy (laughs) can move and where the capitalist economy that we operate within can accommodate, which means that the vast majority of companies still need to be focusing on what is cost competitive, right? Like companies exist to make money by and large. And so all of these additional unpriced externalities that this profit-making set of activities is resulting in 
is making it very difficult for us to price the externalities, which is what carbon markets do, right? They help us put a price on the bad things that we don't want to have happen anymore so that we can start to level the playing field a little bit more. And I think, you know, the NGOs need to be educated on just how real the trade-offs actually are and the fact that this is really hard and is slow and does take a long time and is going to come at a cost. And I think we also need to have you know, the folks who work in the real economy coming to the table and having an honest conversation about some of those trade-offs so that we can find a transition plan that kind of meets everyone in the middle. We're just not going to get where we need to go if we allow perfect to be the enemy of good. And if we write the rules in such a way that just anybody can say whatever they want about what they're doing and have it be okay. And so that set of pragmatic rules-based kind of transition pathways, I think, is a big part of the work that we need to do over the course of the next decade. And I'm personally really excited to start to see that conversation happening in earnest and how we capitalize on the enormous institutional knowledge, capital, and scale of some of the world's largest and most powerful companies to help fix this existential problem that they've frankly helped to create. Alexia, you've already touched on this push for transparency and reliability in the voluntary carbon market. And that brings us to another hot topic in this space, which is the regulatory space. So at Adamantine, we've been keeping an eye on really um, key developments. So, you know, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission seems to be considering a more proactive and hands-on role in regulating the voluntary carbon market and the Federal Trade Commission's upcoming green guides may also shape the legal and regulatory space around carbon offsets. And so I'm curious, what do you think? What does regulatory involvement mean for the voluntary carbon market? Yeah, another great question. As they say, sunlight is the best disinfectant and increased regulatory scrutiny is very welcome from my perspective. We really need regulators to be stepping in. We also need regulators to step in and and recognize that In many instances, progress in the voluntary carbon market has moved much more quickly than in the regulatory space. And so it used to be that the regulatory processes were always assumed to be better, more rigorous, faster. And what's happened is that that's actually not the case anymore because so much, especially in the U.S., of the action around climate has been squarely relegated to the voluntary action realm. And so because these markets are so challenging to get right, we really will need continued engagement and scrutiny from regulators to eliminate carbon cowboys and to make sure that we have strong oversight and control mechanisms as this market moves from what is kind of a boutique, over-the-counter, relatively small scale. You know, the market hit $2 billion last year, and that was a huge deal. But anyone who's worked in any large sector in the economy knows that $2 billion is really just a rounding error on a lot of balance sheets. And so really thinking about that path to scale and making sure that we have that strong oversight and regulation is going to be very important. So I do hope that regulators will engage with the voluntary initiatives that have been leading the way on reform and have also been learning the hard lessons of what being a regulator in the carbon crediting and quantification space looks like, because it is really hard. It's just like with the IRS, right? Or any other regulated market. Like there's always this game of cat and mouse that you're playing, where as the regulator, you set the standard to the level that you think you can set it. And there's always people in the system 
just like people who are pushing the IRS limitations and rules all the time with their taxes, you have project developers doing the same thing in the carbon market. They're always going to be pushing the bounds and finding the loopholes and poking. And that doesn't mean that you throw the IRS out or disband the IRS because there are some people who are taking advantage of the rules. You give the IRS the tools and the resources it needs to really do a good job of enforcing and setting standards and rules that continuously improve and continuously adapt and respond as we learn more about how these markets are showing up and being implemented in the real world. So that set of enforcement capacity is a really critical part of what both regulators can help us build and also that we are very earnestly engaged in building through the ICBCM and other kind of reform mechanisms that are in place in the voluntary carbon market today. That IRS metaphor is so good because it it really speaks to this idea of not just throwing out the whole concept because you don't like part of it. Although, of course, we do have political movements trying to throw out the IRS. So like it speaks a little bit in all its elements to the moment we find our, ourselves in where things are so polarized, which is why we wanted to talk to you, Alexia, because you've mentioned trade-offs a number of times. As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about how you exist in this weird, pragmatic space that we live in where in- incremental progress matters and urgency drives imperfect progress. I'm just I just want to get your take on on something that I spent a lot of time fretting about which is sometimes I, I I'm in a conversation with someone like you who's pragmatic and progress oriented and I think we're going to make it like we're going to decarbonize there's just we have there, you know like you said we get these corporate once we get these corporations involved and from our perspective we get the oil and gas industry accelerating decarbonization progress and then sometimes I'm just overwhelmed and think we just need to start working on adaption, like build the walls, you know, for the rising sea levels. You also sit in this space where probably people love to critique you for selling out or not being pure enough, but in the middle where I think all the interesting good things get done. Where do you sit? Where's your optimism? Like, well, how, how do you think all this is going to play out? It is absolutely a question that I sit with a lot. And my answer to, you know, is it mitigation or is it adaptation and resilience? I think it's yes and. Like, yes, there is no question that to deliver on 2050 goals is an enormously complex and difficult undertaking and will require the full engagement and resource mobilization of, frankly, every sector in the global economy, in particular the oil and gas sector, because that is the underlying source of all of these emissions. So when I was at Netflix serving as the director of Net Zero Plus Nature and building our internal decarbonization strategy, you know, what we did was sort of trace back and say, okay, At a fundamental level, our emissions profile is a result of electricity that we consume, fuel that we burn in our buildings, and fuel that we burn in vehicles. That was what it was. And so going upstream and looking at what are the most efficient and scaled ways to address mitigation, reduce emissions across these core sectors at a global level is going to be an enormously important part of the conversation. And like not honestly, one we're having with a high degree of seriousness yet. And so we really need to do that. But, you know, to your point, Tisha, like science is enormously clear that every nth of a degree of warming that we can shave help makes things really less bad in the future for our children. The efficiency in the next 10 to 15 years where we can't just shut down all of our oil and gas production capacity right? Like we don't, we just don't have the alternatives in place yet to do that. We really need to lean in significantly on what is the low hanging fruit? 
methane abatement being a huge opportunity that I think is still largely going unaddressed in a meaningful way. Um, and how do we really start thinking about pushing efficiency across all of our core operations? Well, at the same time, mobilizing the resources and investment and demand signal that's required in order for new technologies to really be developed, tested, scaled, and deployed so that we can start this transition in, a, in an earnest way. I think, as you're aware, on adaptation, there is no corner of the globe that hasn't felt the impacts of a changing climate. And extreme weather fueled by climate change cost the U.S. $165 billion in 2022. An analysis from the nonprofit Climate Central earlier this year found that between 2017 and 2021, the U.S. experienced a billion-dollar disaster every 18 days on average. And if you go back in time and look at the average time between those events in the 1980s, it was 82 days. So there's no question that we need to be having a serious conversation about both adaptation and mitigation at the same time. And I think the exciting part about that is that the overlap in the Venn diagram of adaptation and mitigation is actually much larger than I think people think. So microgrids and distributed clean energy deployment, for example, is a great example of like where that, that overlap in the Venn diagram exists, where we're delivering really important mitigation objectives and also delivering climate security and adaptation benefits to local communities. I want to tangent for a second off of our plan and 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 just riff off something you said. I mean, every argument you make for quick action and for for adaptation is also an argument for offsets, right? Like accelerating offsets. I'm curious, why did it become cool in this moment in time for offsets to be not cool? Like, why is like do you do you have a, a hypothesis on? why it's so easy right now to be anti-offsets? I think there's a lot of noise and that noise is not accidental. So there has been a well-resourced and pretty well-coordinated, I think, anti-offset campaign that has been sowing the seeds of disenfranchisement and kind of discrediting the market for a number of years now. And I think this like fever pitch that we're hitting with the media at the moment is sort of the culmination of that campaign. So this didn't happen by accident. And I want to acknowledge that, you know, a lot of the issues that have been raised in these articles are real problems. Like they are, they're problems that the market has been working to fix and that need to be addressed. The degree of the problem, I think, is up for a lot of debate. But there has been a really intentional effort to decarbonize. And sadly, what that's resulted in is in companies lowering their climate ambition, not increasing it. And that's really unfortunate part, right? Like Shell used to be the largest purchaser of offset credits in the market. They had a half a billion dollar annual commitment to purchasing high quality carbon credits from around the world. And this noise has enabled them to step back from that and say, oh, nope, we're actually not going to do that anymore because it's a cost center. And a lot of these projects are delivering life-changing benefits to communities on the ground, including, to your point, adaptation and resilience benefits that just aren't being priced, aren't being really reflected in kind of the project's valuation. They're just co-benefits. They're like along for the ride. So one of the projects that I bought when I was at Netflix in Africa, you know, was a forest restoration protection project. And it just so happened that that forest was the headwaters <laughs> for the drinking water source of a giant, you know, a city of a million people. 
that forest is what was enabling that headwaters and that drinking water to be clean and available and to survive the drought, the multi-year mega drought that is, you know, implementing or impacting Africa right now. And that just, oh, by the way, it was just sort of casually mentioned that that happened to be a co-benefit of this project. So I think it's really important to recognize that there is that overlap in the Venn diagram and the carbon monoxide market in a really will, real way, especially when it comes to nature protection and restoration, which is what a lot of this money goes to. Well, we can take heart that people who listen to this podcast are more committed to solutions than they are to perpetuating divisions. Let us all just have a dismissive eye roll for those of you out in the world who are spending more effort undermining progress because you love the fight so much. And there's a lot of there's a lot of even well-intentioned people, I think, who are just so committed to the battle that they forgot we we all have to come together and solve this problem. So to end on an upbeat note, Alexia, tell us what are you most optimistic about? You know, in addition to sort of connecting with folks like you guys who are really trying to chart out that messy middle and recognize that it's not all black and it's not all white, we're really going to need to sort of, you know, grapple with shades of green here for the next two decades, really. I'm most optimistic about the rapidly declining cost of a wide variety of clean energy technologies and the U.S. and European policy landscape that are really starting to incentivize and level the playing field between low and zero carbon technologies and infrastructure and heavily subsidized incumbent fossil-based technologies. So we'll start to see increasing numbers of companies moving to these new technologies, not just because they're the right thing to do to address climate change, but because they're the cost-effective thing to do. And that is the thing that like, honestly gives me hope because as soon as folks can make a profit in deploying these technologies at scale, that's when we start to see them really start to take off. That's the fastest way to accelerate this transition and making sure that we have strong policy and regulatory structures in place to help accelerate that transition is fundamental to leveling that playing field and delivering on our climate change goals. Well, Alexia, I'm optimistic because you're out in the world doing what you do. So thank you for working so hard, being so pragmatic, having conversations with people like us. And thank you to my co-host, Kelsey, um, for joining me also today on the Energy Thinks podcast. Thanks, Alexia. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. Thanks for the work you guys are doing and charting through that messy middle. It's really important. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Alexia for joining me. And thank you to my co-host, Kelsey Grant. You know what I found interesting about this? There's just so much urgent need to accomplish <laughs> progress. And I am forever baffled by the number of people who are more interested in creating obstacles to progress. And so that's why I love speaking with people like Alexia who are just relentlessly focused uh, like we are here at Adamantine on progress. I would like to know what you thought about today's episode. I hope that you will take a moment to rate and review us. It really helps other people find our podcast. If you want to know more about our work at Adamantine, please check out energythinks.com. We will be taking a little break for Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. I hope you have a wonderful holiday. I'd like to thank my colleague, Adon Rubio, for making this podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness prosperity, good health, and good turkey.